our people are traumatized. There are thousands of blue tarps on homes in Puerto Rico two years after Hurricane Maria. And today we have houses that are falling apart because of the tremors that are hitting our island. The trembling is happening all the time. Puerto Rico sits between two fault lines. We have families that are sleeping outside. We have kids and children without water or a school to go to. The central government does not have the capacity to be able to deal with this type of situation. It was the governor that admitted there is no emergency plan for earthquakes. This is where stateside, we have to exercise our social capital, our political capital, and our conscience. It is no time to just watch the news. It is no time to just say, I will pray for my family, or I hope that they are okay. Today we must do something, and it is time for action. Hi, everyone. That was Cristina Pasiones Zayas and Jesse Fuentes, co-chairs of the Puerto Rican Agenda, at a press conference announcing the reactivation of the Chicago Puerto Rican Agenda's 3Rs campaign for earthquake relief. Since December 28, 2019, close to 1,300 earthquakes have hit Puerto Rico, with the largest being a 6.4 magnitude quake. In response, Chicago's Puerto Rican agenda has reactivated their 3Rs campaign to rescue, bring relief, and rebuild the hardest hit parts of La Isla. Learn more about and or donate what you can to the 3Rs campaign at PuertoRicanChicago.org. Again, that's PuertoRicanChicago.org. Bienvenido, ahora está escuchando el Paseo Podcast, donde destacamos las historias de, por y para la comunidad puertorriqueña. Bienvenidos a todos, you are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Special thanks to Brianna Ramirez-Smith for the intro. Each of our episodes features a different voice intro from a person in the Puerto Rican community. Brianna is a co-jefa of Lolita Productions, has been on the show before as a guest, and most importantly, recently celebrated her birthday. Happy birthday, Brianna. On today's episode, we are going to talk about what happened at the Iowa caucus from the perspective of Eduardo Ortiz, a graduate student at the University of Chicago School of Public Policy. He went to Iowa for the caucuses as part of a Puerto Rican delegation from Chicago. If you haven't heard already, things did not go quite as planned at the caucuses. So we are going to take the deep dive with Eduardo on what his experience was like before, during, and after the caucus chaos. In addition to that, Oscar Lopez Rivera, former political prisoner, Puerto Rican activist, and past guest on the Paseo podcast, is going on a Northwest tour of the U.S. He and one of the coordinators of his tour, Margarita Gallagher Huertas, 
will come on to discuss what you can expect from the tour and share some perspectives on the current state of Puerto Rico. After you listen to this episode, learn more about Oscar on episodes two and three of the podcast. Before we get into the interviews, I just want to give a quick shout out to the Puerto Rican women's basketball team. Women are amazing, y'all. Let me tell you why. Because for the first time in the team's history, they will be heading to the Olympics. So keep an eye out for these strong Latinas when they hit the court at the Olympics in Tokyo this year, starting July 24th. As a basketball fan, I cannot wait to see them play. Speaking of waiting, you've waited long enough. Here's my Iowa caucus discussion with Eduardo Ortiz. joined today by Eduardo Ortiz. He is a grad student at the University of Chicago School of Public Policy. Eduardo, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me. What should our guests know about you? I'm originally from Bayamon. I moved to Chicago about two and a half years ago for grad school. Coincidentally, I moved sort of uh, three days before Maria. So uh, hmm. I was in Chicago, but all of a sudden I was alone in Chicago and 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 I sort of got integrated into the uh, Puerto Rican community here and and uh, have sort of been active in the Puerto Rican uh, community in Chicago and the Humble Park community uh, as much as I can, doing community work, uh, doing advocacy work. That's sort of how, how I ended up in this booth. Nice. Uh, and one of the big reasons that you're here, too, is I saw that you had actually gone with the Puerto Rican delegation to Iowa for the Iowa caucuses to advocate for significant and intentional policy that would impact Puerto Rico in a positive way that can get Puerto Rico kind of out of this limbo, right. especially as it relates to how the United States sees their relationship to Puerto Rico. Right. For people that don't know, what are the Iowa caucuses? Why are they significant? So the Iowa caucuses are the first step in political parties in the United States deciding their presidential candidate. Um, both Republicans and Democrats hold their first quote-unquote primary contest in Iowa. And how that is held is people from all over Iowa go to different precincts. And according to what precinct they belong to, they will go to a caucus, which is, which is essentially a party meeting where you have to arrive at a certain time. And it's essentially a meeting. People talk, people debate. And at the end of the day, depending on what candidates has the most votes, uh, they will be assigned certain delegates. And so after at the end of every caucus, votes are counted up, delegates are assigned, and the results are sent up. And whoever has the most votes and whoever has the most technically the most delegates assigned after all those caucuses ends up being the state's overall winner of that um, primary contest. It's an interesting system. I think in theory, the system's really good. Um, we'll definitely get into the the chaos of the Iowa caucuses, but I, I kind of like the idea. I mean, I like rank choice voting the right. best. I feel like I really like that system, but the caucus system is interesting. Like you said, it's a community meeting. People come in, they debate, they have rep each candidate has a representative in the room and right. people can kind of align through a first round. Second round, if you don't, if your candidate is like didn't get anything or got the least amount of, of you can support be strategic. In that room, yeah. yeah, you just kind of there's these different realignment periods, and I think that's just such a fascinating way to debate these issues because the statistics show not everybody that votes actually knows what they're voting for. Like right. the, the education for the average voter is not very high, not education level in terms of degree, but sure. just the amount of time dedicated to understanding the issues. Right. Um, so we'll definitely get into one particular issue, and that's where the 
presidential candidates stand on their Puerto Rico policy. But before we get into that, you went with a delegation from Chicago. Why were the Iowa caucuses significant to the Puerto Rican community? The entire initiative uh, was spearheaded by uh, Power for Puerto Rico, which is a coalition of Puerto Rican organizations across the United States trying to advocate for Puerto Rican policy goals at the federal level. And so we, I was part of the Chicago delegation, but we had people from Minnesota, we had people from Florida, we had people from New York. Uh, who all came down to Iowa. And uh, the reason why we went down there, why it was so important, it's because Puerto Ricans only vote in the primary. They don't vote in the general. The Puerto Ricans after the March primary can be completely ignored by presidential candidates. And so we felt that if we were to put pressure on candidates to speak up on Puerto Rico and to take comprehensive policy positions, we needed them to hear us and we needed them to see us. And what what better place to do that than the biggest contest of the election cycle, which is the Iowa caucus. Uh, it, it, because it goes first, the the gravity of, of that election is always huge. A lot of people throughout history see the winner of Iowa as the as almost having a lock for the nomination. So mm-hmm. the press coverage, the the community activism, the the attention overall of the nation is on Iowa. So we thought what better way to amplify our, our message than to go to Iowa. Iowa kind of seen as, you know, this is going to be the marker for who is the candidate to watch and who most likely will be the that their party's nominee. Mm-hmm. I think we saw that a perfect example was Barack Obama when he first ran. Uh, people were just, who's this guy with this silly name from Illinois? You know, he hasn't been a senator for long. Right. Um, a lot of people thought Hillary Clinton had it locked down. And lo and behold, Iowa caucus comes around. Barack Obama wins it. And ended up being a two-term president. Right, yeah. Uh, So it's a big deal. Iowa makes or breaks. I want to touch base on an article you wrote recently. It was an opinion piece for Univision. And you asked the question, the headline reads, why the delay over Puerto Rican self-determination? And I I pulled a couple quotes that I wanted to just ask you to say a bit more on. So one of your quotes, you said, in the political history of Puerto Rico, nothing has been more constant or more hollow than empty promises of self-determination by both major U.S. political parties, Republican and Democrat. What did you mean by that? Can you say a bit more? So so basically one of the policy issues that um, we went down Iowa to talk about is the issue of self-determination of Puerto Rico. The fact that um, Puerto Ricans aren't, don't have the power to change their relationship to the U.S. Uh, without um, Congress's action. So uh, Congress has unilateral control over Puerto Rico's relationship. And so it's an issue that's been kicked down the, uh, it's sort of been kicked down the road. It's a, what's the phrase? Uh, they Kicking the can down the right, road. Right. They've kicked the can down the road on that issue a lot. And um, we feel that after more than 120 years of Puerto Ricans being a part of the American national experiment, um, the fact that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens without a voice in it has created this, this, let's just say 120 years compounds, 100 years of being ignored in politics, in economics, in in social policy, the, the effects can be seen. Um, there's a, there's a, a profound hierarchy um, and, and, and territories are sort of ignored um, in, in America. So until we get some clarity on where we're moving forward as Puerto Ricans, I think a lot of the current problems we face now aren't going to get any better. I think uh, problems of economic policy, problems of uh, governance, of trade, of even the most basic things like uh, healthcare, are dictated by the fact that we have sort of one foot in and one foot out 
of the, like I say, the American National Experiment. Um, and so until we figure out a process by which Puerto Ricans can meaningfully uh, decide their future, I think a lot of the current problems remain unaddressed to their core. And, and when I say that uh, a lot of words are hollow, it's because uh, we can look at comments from 1900 to 2016 and from both parties, and they're the exact same, I think. Um, from the Democratic Party platform of 1900, uh, denouncing the original sort of colonial rule in Puerto Rico, um, they declared it, uh, the Democratic Party declared it a bold, open violation um, of the nation's organic law and a flagrant breach of national good faith. It imposes upon the people of Puerto Rico a government without their consent and taxation without representation. Mm. Um in 2016, Democrats believe that the people of Puerto Rico should determine their ultimate political status from permanent options that do not conflict with the Constitution, laws, and policies of the United States. Um, from the Republican Party in uh, 1972, the Republican Party adheres to the principle of self-determination for Puerto Rico. We will welcome and support statehood for Puerto Rico if that status should be the free choice of its people in a referendum vote. That's 72. And in 96, the Republicans say, we support the right of the United States citizens of Puerto Rico to be admitted as a fully sovereign state after they freely so determine, we, we endorse initiatives of the congressional Republican leadership to provide for Puerto Rico's smooth transition um, if they choose to alter their current status or set them on their own path to become an independent nation. So both parties for decades and, and even a century have been saying lots of similar things about self-determination, about um, you know how unfair it is to be governed without your consent. So it's not that... It's an issue that is not understood well, um, but it's clearly the issue hasn't moved forward, which mm -hmm. just sort of makes those words that I just read ring extremely hollow, considering how old they are and how little the issue has progressed. I thought that was fascinating. Before we started recording, you had mentioned originally what you wanted to include in this piece was kind of like a uh, then and now reference to these quotes to see that maybe the way these thoughts are articulated or presented differently with right. different words, but they're essentially saying the same thing. And this constant repeat of the same messaging, but no action, it just rings hollow. You're just kind of just saying things just for the sake of saying things because you think it sounds good and it's gonna put to rest any unrest that could potentially happen from Puerto Rican people calling you out and organizing. Exactly. Or going to Iowa. <laughs> We're going to Iowa, exactly. And you mentioned in that same article, when a, when a politician claims support for Puerto Ricans' choice, they falsely wash their hands of any responsibility in the matter. Are these quotes that you just brought up, is that what you were referencing in that? Or were you referencing other other factors? I was referencing the, the whole situation because um, to say that there's been no action on the issue um, isn't hypothetical. It's not to say, well, if Puerto Ricans self-determined, they would ignore. No, it's it's... Not a hypothetical. Before before the, we recorded it, we were talking about um, in 2012, uh, despite the, the the ballot measure in Puerto Rico having two parts and the second part being controversial and misinterpreted, the first uh, part of that ballot uh, was a very clear question. Do you support the current territorial status in Puerto Rico, uh, of Puerto Rico? And 54% of Puerto Ricans said no. Mm. I don't think people understand the gravity of that. Mm -hmm. um, and even if we can argue that there's debate over what the future should hold, and we should definitely have that discussion with uh, Puerto Rican communities and, and, and the U.S. and what the, the path looks forward for both of us, 
the fact that since 2012, you could make a very legitimate argument that Congress has been holding Puerto Rico in its status quo against uh, their will is is a reality that I think we need to shine a bigger spotlight on. We need to make it evidently clear that um, on the issue of self-determination, um, candidates wash themselves of responsibility because by saying we support self-determination, you make it seem like we're the ones holding up the issue. You make it seem like we're the ones who haven't made up our minds. And while you're right, there is a lot of discussion needed to be had. It is not up for debate that there is no excuse to delay the democratic rights of more than three million American citizens. Mm -hmm. There's just no excuse. Um, and I, I go into the I go into the piece on different reasons as to why a lot of bad arguments are given to delay and to stop. Oh, we have a lot of things to work out. That's totally fine. We can set the path forward and say, all right, we're going to plan for that eventuality, for whatever Puerto Ricans choose. We're going to start our path now, even if it doesn't happen to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But we do need to uh, let that choice be made and we need to let that choice be binding. Otherwise, um, the current limbo status um, risks uh, endangering the lives of, of, of millions of Puerto Ricans. And that's not a, a, a comment I, I say lightly. I think after the hurricanes and after the earthquakes, it's evident for people to see that Puerto Ricans, like a second uh, class status in, in America, profoundly affects life or death decisions about aid, about welfare, about how much attention the federal government can give or is willing to give um, people who don't have voting representatives or who can't vote for president. Without this lack of policy or acting on those words that are spoken in the halls of Congress or even in the White House, you know, I, I, on two on two ends, I want to look at this. On one end, stick with me here. On one end, the heartbreaking part of this is things like Hurricane Maria, like you referenced. You're talking about 4,000 people that lost their lives as a result of that hurricane and the mismanagement around recovery. Right. Fast forward to now, we're talking about the earthquakes on the other end of the spectrum. We got 2,000, close to 2,000 earthquakes that have hit La Isla since December 28th. Right. We're in February. It's like, it's February 8th. <laughs> like yeah. we are, <laughs> I mean, this is a constant shaking of the island. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to minimize this, but when you look at the attacks on infrastructure from these different climate crises, uh, a hurricane or earthquake, that's that's affecting infrastructure, that's affecting people's living status, that's affecting their ability to go to work, keep food on the table, access to clean water. The list goes on and it's, on. It's and affecting on. education right now. There's a, a there's a school that was destroyed, and parents are afraid to send their kids to school because they yeah. don't know that at the next earthquake, right. what might happen. So it's it's affecting the education of thousands and hundreds of thousands of kids looking at the hurricane at least with the hurricane you know it came and it went okay it's done right earthquake you have no idea when it's nope. going to be done so it's like that could be the last time your kid walks out the door your spouse walks out the door your abuela you know yeah. it's just it's it's a terrifying feeling and just the the stress and the trauma that gets amplified with each earthquake it's i mean right. a lot of this is from maria too you just can't you just can't minimize the impact that we have as a country in the united states how we can actively benefit the lives of people on my left we just cared 
And right. now I don't feel like there's a lot of care being given. We in the Puerto Rican community, I don't want to make it sound like a bootstrapping mentality, but we in the Puerto Rican community need to do organizing. We need to come together. We need to coalition build. And we need to make our right. voice so loud that we can speak truth to power with such authority and such clout that the candidates can't help but give us the attention we deserve. Right. Um, and I think what you all are doing, what you all did in Iowa is a great example of that. Not everybody is willing to just drop what they're doing in their day-to-day -day lives, head out to Iowa, to the Midwest. I know we're in the Midwest, but that's a totally different state. And not a lot of people think about Iowa. Unfortunately, only it's only around the presidential season is when we start, that really right. starts to ramp up and we see that in the news more. So the attention's not given, their proper attention isn't given to that state. So it's easy to overlook it. So with y'all organizing, going there, what was it like? What was it like being a part of the Chicago Puerto Rican delegation in Iowa? So so like we, we, like we were just talking about, a, a big part of our message was, you know, we need to be here. Like we're, we're you know, we don't mean to bother anybody. Mm -hmm. We just need to be here because we're not being heard. And we are living under a system where we don't have any votes. So if we're not here, we have no recourse. It's, it's mm -hmm. this or, or bust. And like you were just saying, Iowans, to a degree, obviously, it's, it's very different, but Iowans feel ignored. The director of Power for Puerto Rico, Erica uh, Gonzalez, she made a great point. She was talking to, we were all talking to different Iowans at different events, and she mentioned the conversations went so productively because we were talking to people who are tired of seeing themselves as flyover country, talking to people that are tired of seeing themselves as like flyover colony, mm -hmm. as vacation colony. And there was such a strong bond between Iowans and Puerto Ricans, like even me uh, personally, I, I experienced it very deeply when I was talking to people and saying, hey, explaining why we're here and handing out literature and, and, and explaining things about Puerto Rico. As soon as you mentioned the our, our lack of a voice and our lack of attention, you could see their eyes spring up because they could, mm. obviously to a Resonated. different extent, but they could understand to yeah. a degree what it's like to be forgotten and to only be remembered maybe once every four years and then be disregarded or be discarded. Um, and so obviously it's very different with it, with sort of the systemic issues in the territories, but but it was it was amazing. It was such an eye-opening experience and it, and it opens up new, completely new avenues for Puerto Rican organizing because I guess we often assumed that why would anybody care? Like we're just an island, like we're pretty far. We're not, like Cuba, Cuba's off Miami. We're pretty far to the east. Like we're pretty far from even Florida. Why would Iowans care about us? And I feel like it, it was an experience. Going to Iowa was a, was a great experience because it gave us a lot of hope that, you know, despite the fact that we might not encounter Iowans, might not encounter a lot of Puerto Ricans in their daily lives, and we might not encounter a lot of Iowans in our daily lives, there are things that we can work together on. And there are issues of representation and issues of attention and and dignified government response that we can all work together on um and i say so i think that's what my major takeaway of the io experience is so it sounds like that message that you all came with really resonated with people that feeling of being forgotten or overlooked right let's keep talking about the iowa caucus so sure. in case our listeners were living under a rock or maybe aren't uh, political nerds like you and i um, there was a little bit of chaos at the Iowa caucus. Yep. Uh, things did not quite work out as planned uh, as it sounds like or it looks like uh, from the state Democratic Party and how they ran that election. To give context, 
the Iowa caucuses, normally uh, each presidential cycle, we get those results within 24 hours. This time was different. There was a delay in results. We did not get them that night. We didn't even get the full result this morning. In fact, I'm not sure where the, as of this recording, where they are in the total percentage of votes that have come in. Uh, but it's my understanding that there were, it was slow going. They tried to implement different ways for people to vote. Everything from, well, I guess the most important addition or most significant addition was the introduction of an app where people can say their choices via this app. Uh, Iowa is a rural state, so it's not the easiest thing to just take a train, take a bus, and get to a polling place or a caucus location. So with the introduction of the shadow app, uh, people, you could vote that way. You could vote um, via phone. You could vote in a satellite caucus site or, or at the actual designated caucus areas. So a lot of the chaos ensued when apparently, according to reports, uh, this is from NBC and ABC and MSNBC, uh, even Fox News, uh, people are calling into the caucus phone lines, but they weren't residents of Iowa. So people calling, people kind of flooding from different parts of the United States, too much call volume to adequately take in results and take, in, take them in legitimately. And then the app wasn't running properly. So the optics of all this, when you consider the different layers of uh, who's in the race right now, uh, which ex-campaign staffers uh, are working on the app, which current campaign, which I believe is the Pete Buttigieg campaign, has, uh, I don't know if it's the campaign himself or staffers in his campaign that have helped fund that app called the Shadow app. I think everything from the name of the app, who's involved, the new technology, the slow going of the of the results coming in, in addition to the type of policies that are being discussed from a wide ranging spectrum of the Democratic base, all leads and creates a space for conspiracy theories. And I don't think either you or I are conspiracy theorists. I think this is just poor planning. I think that's what this comes down to. But there's just enough layers to this that the optics of it just look really bad. Um, so can you just, as someone that was there as all this was happening, can you talk a little bit about the confusion? What were you thinking? Right. What was the delegation thinking? Because there's there's a lot to unpack here, and I don't want to take too much time on the chaos because I know that story's still developing. Right. But you know, what was the feeling on the day of? We start to notice that things are weird when we're waiting and – all the news, uh, you know, all the news uh, sites and all the ch all the sort of coverage channels were wondering where the results were. And initially, we thought, well, you know, compared to the previous primary uh, Democratic primary, where there were only two candidates uh, versus now, you know, a wide array of, of diverse candidates, we just thought, well, maybe there's just a slight delay because you know caucuses take more time, debates take more time. Mm -hmm. um, maybe something akin to that happened. Um, but as soon as uh, it, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours, we were sort of just taken for a loop as to what was going to happen. So we, we had sort of a, an, an interesting uh, issue in terms of timing out, okay, where do we go and what's going on? And so it really sort of put, uh, threw a wrench in our, in our, I guess, expectations of, of what our next steps were because um, it, it, it was so unexpected. Um, but yeah, but the end of, at the end of the day, you know, uh, the, the, the action was a, was a great success and we got to talk to so many people um, both before the caucus, the days leading up to it, and then that specific night, 
um, before the before they went to the caucus. It's just that you know afterwards um, we were just sitting there like everybody else in America, just looking at looking at TVs, <laughs> go and then sort of talking to people. And then so when we did um, we did finally uh, uh, a couple of us made it to one of the rallies to you know try to talk to people. Um, it was just confusion. Nobody really knew what was going on. Nobody had any information. People had left their people had left their caucuses um, for quite a long time, and they were waiting at these rallies for their candidates to make announcements, depending on the results. And so, we, what we just heard was confusion. So we we don't we being even being on the ground, there was not really a lot of insight as to what was going on. What was the original plan? Right. So we were going to go to more rallies and and keep handing out literature after. So if people who coming back, we had already handed out literature before the caucus. We were going to hand mm -hmm. literature after the caucus at, at different rallies. But because of the delays, um, the timing sort of didn't work out because all of a sudden random candidates began to make speeches at mm -hmm. the same time or some earlier, some later. And that just kind of threw off our our plans. And so we we did we, we improvised and we did as best as we could. The, the plan doesn't stop here. Um, Puerto Ricans are organizing all around the cycle up until November 3rd, I believe. We will be out here um, for the primary, for the general, for both parties. We will be demanding comprehensive platforms for Puerto Rico from both parties. And so, yeah, the action doesn't stop here. And, and especially in places where um, we can probably get more Puerto Ricans out there and more allies there, uh, certainly you will see uh, bigger and, 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 and bolder action, which is, uh, is going to be crucial. I think uh, the fact that no... Democratic debates have asked any questions about Puerto Rico is outrageous mm -hmm. and uh, something that is bigger and bolder actions take place. I think uh, we will see change. Looking at the presidential debates, I right. think on average, Puerto Rico has been only mentioned maybe once or twice. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's not even a question that's referencing Puerto Rico. Right. It's just someone just kind of Name throwing drop. it in their response. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I think to your point, a lot of this is just showing people that this is possible. I think a lot of us see these issues, um, can articulate them, but don't see other people doing it as visibly. So we kind of start to feel like, okay, am right. I the only one that thinks these things? So when you right. see a group of people, small or large, there's some inspiration that comes from that. So I think y'all making inroads in Iowa is a, is a super big deal. Yeah. Real quickly, because I wanted to just hop on a, a thread uh, of, of what ahead. you were saying. Oh, yeah, please. Um, that you were saying that the, there's that inspiration factor. Mm -hmm. I think that that's... Spending my entire life around Puerto Ricans, I think the the most powerful thing that Puerto Ricans have is their tenacity against mm -hmm. cynicism. Anybody could look at our situation and see how voiceless we are, see the the pains that we've gone through because of our voiceless voicelessness, and the fact that we can move mountains, mm -hmm. you know, despite not being the most numerous group, not being the most powerful group, most influential group. The fact that we can move mountains to get things done. Mm -hmm is is something that is that inspires me every single day and every day that i go that i do work um it you know the the, the tenacity of, of the everyday puerto rican to resist the cynicism uh all the way to these actions all the way to ousting a governor mm -hmm. um puerto ricans are just so strong uh, under conditions that most people would just throw their hands up and say what's the point um, and yes, yeah, so I just wanted to just wanted to understand, you know, sort yeah, of uh, for sure. highlight that point. Right. I do want to reference your article again, though. Okay. Um, so transitioning a little bit back to your piece in Univision, uh, you had mentioned when, quote, uh, when presidential candidates get on stage and say they support self-determination for, for Puerto Rico, one can't help but wonder what they are talking about. So where do the candidates stand on Puerto Rico? 
So the, so the the issue is that the conversation needs to change dramatically before the candidates to national office often see two options. They can either say they support a particular status for Puerto Rico, they support statehood, independence, modified commonwealth, etc. Or they can say, I support self-determination. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to seem paternalistic. I'll just... I just say that I support what they choose. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm trying to argue is that both of those answers are insufficient. Both of those answers don't take into account the underlying reality of the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. And like I'm that and they don't take into account what I mentioned earlier that Puerto Ricans have been self-determining since 1898. As soon as the American ships came over, Delegations of Puerto Ricans went to speak to President McKinley to hammer out what the details were of what the next steps were going to be on Puerto Rico. Some people, you know, resolutions from our democratically elected uh, small institutions that we had under the colonial government continuously demanded uh, some form of democracy, whether that was independence or statehood or the transition to a territorial government like other states had been. Like there, Puerto Ricans have been self-determining through democratic means one way or another, since 1898. So when you say you support self-determination, I can't help but wonder, like I said, what do you mean? We've been self-determining all the time. So the conversation needs to change insofar as I don't need you to tell me that you support self-determination. I don't need you to tell me that you support self-determination. I need you to tell me how you're going to make that possible. Because currently, self-determination for Puerto Rico is impossible. So saying that you support self-determination might as well be saying, I support waterfalls flowing upward. Great. Glad to know you support that. It's a great huge. Analogy. Yeah. No. How are you going to make that happen? Otherwise, right. obviously, it's a, it's a weird analogy, but you know, understand what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's saying you support what's something that is currently impossible. Puerto Ricans mm -hmm. can't self-determine because if Congress can unilaterally ignore our self-determinations, that's not self-determination. That's not. We don't possess that right. We don't possess that ability. And it's not the United States' job to f to decide when or where or how we are fit to exercise that right. Mm -hmm. That is not the federal government's job um, to decide if and when we deserve democratic rights to decide our own future. Um, so it's an odd double speak. Right. You know, say it's, one thing but do another. Exactly. Or say things that sound good. It's a good soundbite, but... Really, there's no depth to it or exactly. intentionality right. behind it. I, I think, and I think, it, and often it doesn't come from a place of uh, of, of active uh, malice. It, it comes from a, a sense of not, not wanting to be paternalistic and say, "Oh, I, they should do this," and saying, "You know, I, I should let them." You know, it, it, on on its face, it seems like a very democratic, just position, but mm. that's that's not enough. As as we've seen in the history of America, democracy isn't something that flows freely. Democracy is something that needs to be pushed, mm -hmm. that needs to be adjusted, that needs to be amplified when marginalized voices don't have access to it. I think that's evident across the history of America with marginalized groups. And that it, it's just, there is no difference. Um, in, in the case of Puerto Rico, um, obviously it's different in terms of self-determination for, for the island of Puerto Rico. But the underlying reality that just saying that you support democracy doesn't mean that that democracy is there. doesn't mean right. that, that, that those democratic rights will appear. Mm -hmm. Um, so if, if those if Congress and the federal government doesn't divest itself of the power to ignore Puerto Rico and to rule over it unilaterally, um, saying you support self-determination 
doesn't logically doesn't make a lot of sense. Looking at the presidential landscape right now, the candidates in the race, what are some of the strengths of the current candidates' stances on on Puerto Rico? Powerful Puerto Rico created a great site called PRPolicy.org, uh, which uh, not only lays out the policy blueprint that a large group of Puerto Rican uh, communities have uh, signed off on as, as sort of being the gold standard for what we require from presidential candidates to speak out on comprehensively, but it also lays out what the current presidential candidates um, have said and where they stand on those issues. So I, I would encourage everybody to to look at uh, at that page and 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 look at the nuances, look at the differences, because I think what we've encountered is that often a lot of candidates may uh, speak uh, somewhat candidly on a subject, but they won't speak comprehensively on it. So they might speak very candidly about the need for more comprehensive reconstruction and a better better federal response, a more consistent, less arbitrary and discriminatory um, aid mechanisms, but they won't really sort of present a, a counter to that. Like, what does that look like in practice? And so I think some of the strengths of, of some candidates is that um, they, delve, they, they, they delve a little bit more concretely into uh, what that looks like and what that funding mechanism look like, looks like and what those grants, those uh, low interest loans look like. So I think in, in broad policy strokes, uh, things like reconstruction after Hurricane Maria and rebuilding for climate resili resilience is something that we've noticed in, 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 in some candidates that we are, uh, that we like to see and is going to be important. Again, Puerto Rico is not moving anywhere. We're going to be in the Caribbean for a long time, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And so the the priority as as climate change begins to to bear down is how do we build uh, climate resilient uh, for a for a, a prosperous future in Puerto Rico and I think Puerto Rico is a great spot to begin to uh, build on the forefront of what that technology can be. Eduardo, can you uh, plug that website one more time on how people can after listening to this, of course, will go out log on to what website to learn and research where the candidates stand on their Puerto Rico right. policy. That's prpolicy.org, P-R-P-O-L-I-C-Y dot O-R-G. Beautiful. And then for people that want to keep up with you, do you have a website, social media? How can people keep up right. with you? So I, uh, my Twitter handle is Eduardo underscore Ortiz. That's E-D-O-A-R-D-O -O underscore O-R-T-I-Z. And um, I'm also starting a, a platform to aggregate news and, and provide um, easily digestible bits of information um, about Puerto Rico for a stateside American audience. It's called Bruma. Um, and you can find that on Medium and Twitter at Entre Bruma PR. That's E-N-T-R-E-B-R-U-M-A-P-R, um, both on Medium and Twitter. Um, currently, we've been uh, highlighting, sort of digesting the issues about the earthquakes, about the warehouses of aid, um, about the recent Trump comments, about um, the aid bills currently being debated and and just passed in the House. Um, so we're we're just uh, in the spirit of what we've been talking about, how it's necessary to engage stateside audiences with digestible material on Puerto Rico that they can understand and relate to. Um, we're slowly building that platform to to be a vehicle to further that conversation. Yes, so right on. Okay, that's good to hear. Well, Eduardo, that was awesome. We unpacked a lot. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to hit a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we're going to hear more about Oscar's Northwest tour. So stay tuned for my conversation with Margarita Gallagher-Huertas and Oscar Lopez-Rivera. 
We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Gracias por esperar. We're going to start our conversation with Oscar Lopez Rivera and Margarita Gallagher Hortas. We're going to start that right now and we're going to talk about Oscar's Northwest tour. For context, this conversation was recorded last week via Zoom video conferencing. Now, let's jump into the conversation. Margarita, Oscar, welcome to the show. How are you today? I am real, real good. Thank you, Joshua. Greetings to the listeners and hello, Oscar. We're looking forward to seeing you soon in California. Uh, it's exciting. Well, I look forward to being in California. Yeah, this is this is a this is an interesting um, interesting development right now. I know we're gonna we're gonna definitely gonna take a deeper dive into the, all the aspects of the tour. Um, but first, uh, for our listeners that are unfamiliar with you, Oscar, and you, Margarita, uh, what should our listeners know about you? Oscar, why don't we start with you, and then Margarita will we'll go with you. I, I think that uh, this is a very, very unique moment, not only in Puerto Rico, but throughout the world, to to work towards the creation of better relationships, especially the kind of solidarity that we need. We need a reciprocal form of uh, expressing and working together in solidarity, uh, it would give us the opportunity to define problems, to find solutions to problems, to work together, and probably that will lead us to creating better conditions for, for a world that is totally out of control, a world that is dominated by power of money by wars and worst of all by a lot of hatred and fear mm. margarita what about you what should our listeners know about you um so i i'm a community organizer and puerto rican political activist and i i'm an executive board member of el club puerto Ricano de san francisco as you mentioned um, it's the oldest Latinx social club in the history of the United States. It's actually older than LULAC. Um, its mission is to preserve 
and promote the culture of Puerto Rico. And I do want to note that my views and political activism do not express the views or opinions of the club, but I'm, I'm telling you this because it's kind of important for me and the work that I do, and Oscar just kind of touched on it, is what I do and what my work involves is creating solidarity among the diaspora and with those on the island. So that's part of the work that I'm doing there um, and why it's so important for me to work, I'm working with Luis Alejandro Molina of the National Boricua Human Rights Network and also Aixa Gannon-Siegel from the Bay Area Alliance for Sustainable Puerto Rico um, in organizing Oscar's tour um, because of all, all the, the tremendous crises that Puerto Rico has faced just since his release. Um, so that's a little bit about my background and about me and with the whole social media, getting his social media up and running, it's important because we're trying to engage um, the youth and the younger generation. Let's, let's get into the tour. So I saw this, I saw the press release announcing the tour. Um, Oscar, without, <laughs> without giving too much away, what are some of the topics you plan to cover on your tour? Um, what are some of the key messages that you're hoping to get across to people that go to it? Well, well, first of all, I would like to cover the issue of decolonization uh, because that's what we're working on. We're trying to eliminate colonialism in Puerto Rico. And as long as Puerto Rico is the subject of colonization, we, are, we will continue facing the same problems and problems getting worse and worse. Uh, and this is a particular moment uh, that offers us opportunities. To, to work not only in Puerto Rico, but outside of Puerto Rico. Not only in marginalized communities and communities that don't have access to any of the media. The media that is there is the media that is controlled by large enterprises, by the banking industry, and by the political structure, both in the United States and in Puerto Rico. The importance of having having access to to communication, I think, is, is crucial. It's one of the topics that I think we will be covering. Another another area of interest is the education system in Puerto Rico, how uh, the whole system, University of Puerto Rico system, and the public school systems uh, have uh, been completely, completely. Uh, become uh, or reduced to be dysfunctional. Uh, the Secretary of Education that was picked out not too long ago, she created an environment in Puerto Rico that it's so tangled within the educational system that we don't even know where the educational system, the public education system will go. The other, the other element that we have are the impositions of structures that historically the United States government has placed on the shoulders of Puerto Ricans. One of them is the Fiscal Control Board. And, and we can see how it is taking the funds that, generate, that are generated by Puerto Ricans, by the working class in Puerto Rico primarily, and used to pay for a debt that no Puerto Rican knows where it originated and do not know because we have not been able to audit the debt. It is, uh, odious, it is an odious and criminal debt. 
the other the other uh, area that I think is important is the devastation that Puerto Rico has endured uh, with hurricanes Irma and Maria, and with the earthquake in recent days. And when when people become aware of how the United States government responded to the uh, conditions that were created, the plight of the Puerto Ricans that uh, were were experienced the devastation uh, by by the hurricanes, and the response of the U.S. government, especially uh, the president of the United States and FEMA really illustrate the importance of making sure that Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico becomes an independent and sovereign nation. Now, a point that I want to make, too, is that we have to remember that colonialism violates the crime against humanity, but it also violates our uh, basic inalienable rights to self-determination, to independence. And at the same time, at the same time, denies us the opportunity to move forward. So I think uh, such uh, topics will be part of the conversation, and I'm hoping that the message will get through and that you know, people can uh, understand what it is, what is our plight, where is it that we want to go. And we definitely want to go forward. We definitely want Puerto Rico to be uh, a country that has its own its own uh, government, that we have our own sovereignty, that we have uh, a, a, a human right uh, issue when when uh, democracy is being denied, when human rights are being denied. So I look forward to being able to talk and share with people the experiences that we have endured here in Puerto Rico and what we are facing right now and we, what we will be facing in the future. It sounds like you're going to cover a lot of important ground here. Margarita or Oscar, whichever one of you want to yeah. answer this question, why now for the tour? Why is now the right time to, to do this? Well, I'll go ahead and jump in on that one. Mm -hmm. Now is precisely the right time for Oscar to go back on tour. Um, the, the purpose of his first tour really was immediately following his release, and it was centered on Oscar. So it was more like a jubilant reception by all of his lifelong supporters. Um, this 2020 tour, two years later, Resistance and Resilience, is centered more on Puerto Rico and its lack of self-determination um, and Oscar's role in the diaspora. He himself, you know, went and lived in in Chicago, so it it he's he can speak to the diaspora. Um, so and then of course it's also aimed at we just that you just spoke about the the need for an independent audit of Puerto Rico's seven seventy four billion dollar debt. Um, so yeah, all, since the first tour, all these major occurrences have transpired in Puerto Rico to reiterate the hurricanes and the renunciation of Ricardo Rosselló, the earthquakes, and the further uncovering of the, the corrupt politics that the PROMESA Act and, and La Junta have caused to the island. So now, now is precisely the right time, not to mention that it's a, also a presidential election year. So it's important to mobilize the diaspora and make people aware of of what's going on in Puerto Rico. Time for 
some of our leaders to start acknowledging Puerto Ricans as U.S. citizens. Doing something like a tour is is a pretty good way for a lot of people that are trying to get a message out and have a dialogue. It's a really good method of trying to get these talking points or at least these topics uh, pushed to the forefront of, of people's minds. So looking at the tour right now, um, it's my understanding that it's, is it taking place just on the, the north, on the northeast? Is it on the northwest? Is it the entire United States? What part of the United States is this happening at? Uh, it is centered on the northwest United States, so it'll be starting at Washington, well, west coast really, um, okay. but we're terming the northwest coast because um, later this year, later this spring, I believe, um, the Los Angeles and maybe San Diego and some other um, more southern California cities will be um, hosting Oscar. So it kicks his his spring 2020 Northwest tour kicks off um, in Seattle, uh, where he will have speaking engagements at the University of Washington, and also some um, he'll um, a um, I think it's called Cena con Oscar at a Cuban restaurant. Nice. Um, then he flies down to UC to to the Bay Area, um, and he has engagements at UC Berkeley. So in total, let me just say this: in total, we have seven confirmed universities, and also um, so that's from Washington all the way down to Santa Barbara, um, and we also have some pending um, community colleges that have just recently heard about the tour and are trying to get themselves squeezed in. So, um, so from Washington, he goes to Berkeley, and then you see Davis, San Francisco State, Cal State East Bay, uh, San Jose State University, and UC Santa Barbara. Um, there are also, uh, we, we've also um, scheduled engagements for him at a few cultural centers and all that. I, I can give you all the information later where to find mm -hmm. more information, but... Um, so yeah, that's what we have. It's going to be intense and um, yeah, but we're just trying to really, I think it's important, like I just spoke about engaging the youth and making making university college students aware of the situation in Puerto Rico. I saw, I definitely want to give you some time, Margarita, to share how people can find more information on this tour but I wanted to talk to you and Oscar about something else I saw in the press release. So Margarita, you mentioned uh, really trying to get the message out there to young people. Social media is a great platform to do that on. I remember when I was, when I started the Paseo podcast, Facebook and Twitter account, um, you know, I start the, I start the, I start the accounts at Paseo podcast and then I start looking for people to follow. And I noticed that Oscar didn't have any social media channels. So to see that there's, there's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter now for, for Oscar. Is that right, Margarita? Yeah, I, I started working with um, Luis Alejandro Molina and Aixa Gannon uh, Siegel. I, real, I also noticed that. I was like, hey, he needs a presence. We need to get him all, yeah. on all the major social media platforms. So um, right now, it's, it's, it's really just me doing it. So I'm doing the best I can given life and everything else. So, um, but yes, they're, they're up and running now. Um, I, we will be more active on it as we gain more volunteers and we have more events um, going on. So 
Yeah, so that's the, also the website. Uh, the, it's going to be the National Boricua Human Rights Network website. It's being worked on right now, but it'll be live and updated a week from today. Um, so that, that'll have all the links as well, as well as other platforms like maybe Flickr or YouTube. So Margarita, could you re uh, repeat again for us, uh, how can people find out more information about the tour? And can you also share those different social media channels for Oscar? Yeah, so, um, so uh, the, the website is, that will be up soon, um, is the National, it's National Boricua Human Rights Network. So nationalboricuahumanrights.org. Um, and then the Facebook page for the that we've created for the Northwest Spring Tour, and and I'm sure that'll just continue as his is official page. So it's just at Oscar Lopez Rivera official. So that's for Facebook and Instagram is the same at Oscar Lopez Rivera official, and Twitter is at O L R underscore official. So at O L R underscore official for Oscar Lopez Rivera. Um, yeah, and it's just important that, that we're working with Oscar, that we've created these platforms to really give him a voice on all, all the different issues that are going on and to, to keep him um, active in, in, in raising awareness uh, for everybody um, in Puerto Rico, on the island, and in the diaspora. So, so there was a lot of news and Oscar and Margarita, you both you both hit on this. Um, and so there's been a lot of news coming out of Puerto Rico in the past month. Um, I, I'd like to talk about a number of things, a lot of new news story developments. Um, but let's focus on the earthquakes. Uh, Oscar, uh, what have what have these continuous earthquakes meant for Puerto Rico right now? I think that right now uh, the the situation is one people uh, are fearful. I think I think that there is this uh, uh, lack of uh, knowledge about what uh, uh, needs to be done uh, in order to prevent a, 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 a very very. Uh, disastrous uh, uh, condition in Puerto Rico, it, it, it could happen and people are not prepared and they know that they're not prepared. It, not only are they not prepared, but the governmental structures are never, have never been prepared to deal with anything like that. We saw it in Hurricane Maria and we saw it with the earthquake. And I think that what prevails right now is the, the feeling of people uh, that uh, they're totally insecure about what what it is that awaits them. At the same time, there is almost this uh, uh, attitude on the part of the government and on the part of the politicians to uh, take it for in a very light way. For example, the governor of Puerto Rico was talking about how happy the Puerto Ricans in the in the. Uh, Places where they are, they they're, they're living right now. That they're happy because they have a place to stay and they have food to eat. And that, that's a, a very terrible, terrible uh, 
message, a disrespectfully sensitive message to tell people who are worried, who, who, who don't feel happy at all. How can you feel happy when you don't live in your own house? How can you live happy in, in, in an environment where a lot of other people that sometimes you don't even know? How do you feel happy just because you are getting some, some uh, food, military food or whatever it is that they're bringing them uh, and, and, and not really uh, thinking about the mental conditions, the spiritual conditions, the, 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 the needs that these people have. Because if you, if a person is, is in a, in a, a rescue, uh, one of those places uh, that they've, they've been created, uh, they, 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 that's not a, I mean, a, a home environment. That's not an environment where people can be happy. This is not even you know, an, an environment where, where people uh, feel, will feel comfortable because they're not, they're not in their homes. The, the the fundamental issue in all these things is the lack of empathy, the lack of interest, and the lack of having created, having the the spirit and the energy and the love to create to create things that are needed in Puerto Rico, and 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 definitely, 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 people are worried that if a bigger earthquake hits Puerto Rico, probably much more of Puerto Rico will be devastated. And the structures are not there to provide them uh, with any any aid, except you know, probably the same thing, experiencing the same thing that they experienced with Hurricane Maria and with the earthquakes uh, that, that have taken place in Puerto Rico. I know the Puerto Rican agenda here in Chicago has really been pushing the three R's campaign to to raise some some money and raise money for supplies uh, to directly serve the the hardest hit areas on La Isla, um, but Margarita, I'd I'd love to hear from you. Like, what's the diaspora in San Francisco doing for relief efforts? Is there any organization around earthquake relief efforts on your end of the of the coast? Yes. Yeah, so the Western Region of Puerto Rican Council (WRPRC) um, it's an umbrella organization for several other Boricua organizations throughout California. And uh, we've organized a large earthquake relief benefit on Sunday, that's uh, Sunday, February 9th at 2020. And it'll be held at the San Francisco Puerto Rican Club, my club, Club Puerto Riqueño de San Francisco. Um, but I was just speaking with, with Luis Alejandro Molina about um, about the need for, for Puerto the Puerto Rican diaspora and its allies coming together, not just to support Puerto Rico during times of extreme crises, but but realize that this is a Puerto Rico needs the diaspora's continual re- support. So, you know, um, it's great we're raising all this money, we're supporting La Isla, but it it that's why this tour also for me and for everybody it's uh, that's working with Oscar is so important because it, it's an ongoing struggle for Puerto Rico. So Oscar, this question's for you. And you, you already mentioned what you wanna focus on. Obviously the earthquakes are in there, the 2019 protests are in there. One thing that wasn't mentioned in the press release was the discovery of that warehouse with um, Hurricane relief supplies, the the warehouse in Ponce, those supplies were supposed to be distributed after Hurricane Maria, but they weren't. 
what what were your reactions after hearing that news? What do you think something why do you think something like that happened? Because because the political structure is very corrupt. This 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 particular phrase was being used for people to move things around, but it was it was directed at at, at primarily absorbing funds from the government to to use in in, in something that was never never given up to the people. You know, they, it, it was it, it was you know, it, it was like um, uh, a, a plot between the mayor of Ponce, the the people who work with her, the people who are uh, who are benefiting because the warehouse is getting uh, paid, and 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 they were not going to release the the items that were there because as long as they could use the uh, the place and say that they were warehousing things, they they were getting paid. So it's it's almost like the, this level of corruption that allows people here in Puerto Rico, like the like the governor of Ponce and like the like the, like the mayor of Ponce and the and the governor, the now governor of Puerto Rico, to, to be making very almost almost the most simplistic, the the the, the most obvious comments that any person can make, knowing knowing fully well. That when Hurricane Maria came, those islands should have been distributed. And now, knowing that not even uh, do they use them to help the people who are affected by by the earthquake. So it is almost like a game that they they're so used to because nobody has challenged them. All of a sudden, now you know they're, they're a little bit worried. They're cons- they're trying to ameliorate things, and what they do, they it's kind of they try to say something. It, it is always, always in, in a way that belittles the 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 thinking and belittles the aspirations of the people who are being victims or the victims of of the hurricane and the victims of the earthquake. It, it, it is it is interesting to listen to listen to all these politicians because what they this is an election year in Puerto Rico I would then try to do is to use to use this this uh, devastating event to to promote themselves to 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 make sure that somehow they they're relevant to the people and and it's, it's exactly it's exactly a replica of what what Enrique uh, Rosselló uh, was doing before he was kicked out of office, it is that uh, insensitivity that they have, it's the lack of respect that they have for the Puerto Rican people. They they feel because they they, they come from from a very very uh, solid middle class and upper middle class, and 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 they benefit for everything that happens to Puerto Rico, every anything bad that happens to Puerto Rico, including the debt. They benefit from it, so it is a pattern that they have been established. And now we, you know, when when they discover the the warehouse with all the supplies, all of a sudden uh, they started backfiring, but but uh, stepping back and trying to say, oh no no, this is this is something else. Now all of a sudden we know what it is, and they cannot hide it. And I think that what we're seeing in Puerto Rico right now again is a little bit of what happened during the month of July. And I hope that 
that uh, the young the young Puerto Ricans who are moving this this issue, uh, I hope that they continue to do it in a way in the same way that was done in the month of July. Margarita, what about you? I mean, you heard about this news. What were your reactions after hearing about this warehouse being discovered? Honestly, I I can say that I wasn't really surprised. Mm. I I don't. I, 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 of course, is deeply disturbing, and I was angry, upset, but I, I just, this, this whole junta has just repeatedly failed the Puerto Rican people in the most dire times, the times of need. So, um, yeah, and, and Oscar touched on this too, what, but what to me, okay, so I was upset, yes, about, about the discuss, discovery of the warehouses, but I think what upset me the most was that they were state, one state agency was paying another state agency, um, and, and they created these contracts that were like, what, like five years long or something, so they intended to keep these supplies housed in the warehouse, and they were, they were, uh, making like, was it like $600,000 for these contracts, $200,000 annually for these contracts. So that's, that's what upset me the most. Oscar, this last question is for you. So the warehouse in Ponce has discovered, I've been keeping up online and it looks like there's been protests in San Juan around the governor's residence. What do you think about these protests? Do you feel like they're going to be effective? Do you think we're going to see a repeat uh, of 2019? I mean, how would you describe the political temperature after these warehouses were discovered and these protests happening? I, I think that uh, people uh, are responding in a very angry way. And, and, yeah, and I think that what they're calling for, people are understanding that. And I, I think that uh, the, the strength of all this corruption, the, the the backbone of all this corruption is the political structure that exists in Puerto Rico, and 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 the young people are beginning to really realize that they have enough power to to make changes, and I think that the fact that the warehouses were discovered, the fact that this is an old pattern, this is not new, this goes back to Maria, this goes back to all the stuff that they hit, all the stuff that never got to the, to the public. If, if we go right now, I'm, I'm gonna deviate a little bit, but if we go right now to Juan Avias, and I heard the mayor of Juan Avias say, when when the hurricane happened, that there were over 500 houses with the plastic with the plastic uh, covers. Uh, how how protected are those families who live in those 500 houses if a hurricane w w was to hit uh, Puerto Rico? What why would why would they where would they go? Who who would help them? And this is something that goes back to Hurricane Maria. So uh, the pattern, the pattern, the responsible uh, attitude of those who have control over the money, those who have control over the decisions, they have. I think that they right now they're really concerned about what is going on 
with the with with the protests. I, I I think that I went to three in a row, um, and and I I I felt the energies. I felt the, the the young people moving in the right direction. Those one that you know we, we disagree on uh, because there's something that happened. But at the same time, the continuity is there. The young people are pushing this issue, and the older ones are responding in a very positive way to what they're doing. I think it's educational. I think it's inspirational. And I think that if the struggle, uh, this level of struggle continues, that they will have positive results. And I encourage all the young people and all Puerto Ricans, anywhere they are, uh, to pay close attention to what is happening in Puerto Rico and how some of these things that people are doing will definitely, definitely, in the interest of Puerto Rico, will definitely show that that we have the power to change and we have the, the possibility of creating a better and more just Puerto Rico. Well, Oscar, Margarita, thank you both so much for the time. Before I let you both go, Margarita, can you just share the website one more time and uh, Oscar's social media channels? Yeah, okay, so it's the National Boricua Human Rights Network, and the website is boricuahumanrights.org. Um, his social media, um, the, the Facebook page, and also Instagram are at Oscar Lopez Rivera Official, and Twitter is at OLR underscore official, so OLR for and the website will be up and live next week and it'll have um, additional platforms like Flickr um, included that you can find on there. So thank you. Thank you uh, so much, Joshua, Oscar, again, looking forward to welcoming you back to California. Uh, again, I thank Joshua and you, uh, Margarita, and uh, hope, hope that uh, we, will, we will be very successful with the tour in, 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 uh, in California and Washington. I wish you both all the luck. Good luck on your tour, Oscar. I hope you meet a lot of amazing people. Adelante. Thanks to Eduardo Ortiz, Margarita Gallagher-Huertas, and Oscar Lopez-Rivera for coming on the show today. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at Basil Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate, and happy Valentine's Day. <laughs>